Let us hear then God's word, Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. The grass withers, the fire fades, but the word of our God endures forever. As we begin here today, I'm going to do something that is a little bit different. Uh, Normally, of course, we look at a verse or two or three or whatever and go right down through uh, each of the phrases. But sometimes the words that we have looked at uh, lead us to some broader understandings and ideas. And uh, that is certainly the case here on what Paul has said. Now, of course, I focused on his main points, but there are some very significant applications and implications of these words in terms of how it affects us in our witnessing. Um, uh, Stan just prayed about how we all are missionaries. Well, how do these words of Paul impact the people that we talk to when we go witness to them? Now, another way for us to talk about this, of course, is this topic of apologetics. Okay? And, and so what do we say? Um, how do we approach the people that we're talking to, whether we know them or not? What arguments do we use to help convince them of the truth? What evidence do we use? Um, which scripture passages are most helpful and so on and so forth? And so for these kinds of questions and this broader topic, I want us to spend a little bit of time here today talking about the the broad understanding of apologetics. And certainly there are uh, innumerable ways that we could talk about how to implement these things. So Paul here in these verses has laid out for us some very important ideas that impact much of what we believe. He teaches us that everyone knows that God exists, and not merely that God is some power or force, but we all know that it is the God of the Bible. We may not know him by name, but we all know that it is this God. And it's not merely that we know that God exists. We know many things about God, that he is eternal, that he is all-powerful, that he has a divine nature, which then includes all really, of his attributes. This knowledge is uh, seen clearly in the things that he has made. That's Paul's emphasis here. We also see the attributes of God in history and his providence providing for us. We see it also in the fact that he has written his law on our hearts. But the emphasis here in this section, of course, is on what he has made. So whether we're talking about a child or a great scholar, A simple man or a Nobel Prize winning scientist, everyone knows God because God has made it plain to everyone. This knowledge includes God's grace and mercy because God provides even for his enemies. 
But, as we look at the things that God has made, this does not tell us how to become right with God. We know he's angry with us, but we don't know how to make it right unless we have the Bible. Paul also teaches us that this truth that we know, that everyone knows, uh, is suppressed, and we replace the truth with something else, replacing the true God with something that God has made. And so we take a piece of wood or stone or metal or a person or an idea or an activity or a feeling, and we make it our God instead. And so ultimately, every philosophy, worldview, and religion suppresses the truth about God and replaces him with something else in one way or another. The only exception to this is a true understanding of the scriptures. Now, obviously then, because we do this, God has made it obvious to know him, and yet we suppress that truth. God is not happy with us. And so he has poured out his wrath upon sinners. Of course, we don't like to think about God's judgment, so we suppress that truth as well and say that God is love or that we are not so evil or there's an easy way to be saved or something to that effect. But God is angry with us because of our sin. Now, before we discuss the next point in verses 24 and following, how our evil ideas lead to evil behaviors, and how God's wrath is displayed in this. Let's address some implications here for witnessing, and in particular, for apologetics. And of course, Dale has done some of this for us recently here in Sunday School. But since possibly two-thirds of you were not here for that, uh, I want to say some things now. And uh, as uh, I mentioned last week, I, I planned to do this even before I knew Dale was going to do a Sunday school, and, and so I, I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, address the things I had planned to say uh, here today. So let's turn then a moment to 1 Peter and chapter 3. And in 1 Peter 3, Peter gives us this command. <clears throat> 1 Peter 3, if we look at verse 15. But sanctify, or you could say set apart, the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. All right. Now, the key command here that he is giving for us is that we are to give a defense. We must be ready to defend our faith, why we believe what it is that we believe. Now, the Greek word for defense here is apologia, and that comes right into English as apology. But when we think of an apology, we normally think of saying, I'm sorry. In this context, though, apology, apologizing, apologetics is referring to defending the faith. Defending the truth, giving a defense, explaining why it is we believe what we do. And so Paul, or excuse me, Peter is commanding us to be ready to do this. Why are we Christians? And this then helps us as we witness to others about Jesus. He also tells us we must do this humbly and we must do it respectfully. And we also must do it in a way that points to God, not to ourselves. Too often when we witness or 
do apologetics, we focus on ourselves. This is how I feel. This is what Jesus means to me. And there's a place for those things, but that cannot be our focus. And so apologetics then addresses all kinds of questions, such as, why do we believe the Bible and not the Quran? What are reasons for that? What is evidence for that? Why do we believe in the God of the Bible and not any other God? Why do we believe in biblical truth and not, say, existentialism or secularism? Why do we believe in creation and not the Big Bang? Why is abortion wrong and a woman's right to choose is, you know, uh, the other alternative and those conversations, right? Why... that stay in-house, as it were, why are we Reformed theologians and rather than Arminians? Why are we Protestants and not Catholics or Orthodox? The questions really are endless. And apologetics, which impacts our witnessing then, seeks to answer these questions. Now, there are different ways people answer the questions, different approaches that people take. And in my view, uh, though there are different ways people approach this, I think Uh, to summarize it in three categories is most helpful. And so you have those who seek to use evidence to answer these questions. And so we call these evidentialists. There are others who seek to use reason and rational thought and logic and so forth. And so we call this approach rationalism. Um, And then you have those who focus on our foundational ideas, our presuppositions. And so hence we call this third approach, presuppositionalism. So you see those on your outline. So let's talk about each one of them here briefly and uh, the good things about each one as well as maybe some shortcomings. And so evidentialism. This focuses on using the five senses, the senses that we have, right? Sight and taste and touch and so on, right? It's focusing on science, focusing on facts, focusing on proofs. And so what is the evidence for God's existence? Or what is the evidence for Jesus' resurrection or for miracles or something like that? This approach does use the scripture and it does use rational thought. But the focus is on looking at the evidence. And so the goal of the evidentialist is to demonstrate by evidence to the unbeliever that something is true and call on them to believe it. Some names associated with this approach would be Josh McDowell or Lee Strobel or the intelligent design uh, approach to things, those arguments. Now, in my own personal life, Josh McDowell was very helpful. Uh, And in reading his works and looking at some of the evidence that he talks about, I remember reading this over 30 years ago and how helpful it was for me. Uh, In particular, his discussion about the evidence for the manuscripts of the New Testament and how there are thousands of them and it doesn't compare really at all to any other works of antiquity. The the Bible is so well proven. So this evidence is, is very helpful and very good. And those who hold to this approach do a great service for the church. But I would say there are a few drawbacks in this approach. For example, when you listen to them talk, they will talk about giving evidence up to a certain percentage. 
maybe 90% or 96% or something like that. And there always is a, a gap, if you will, that you cannot prove with evidence. And so they call on us to take a leap of faith. You have all this evidence. It's very compelling, but I can't prove everything, so you just need to trust. You just need to believe in the last bit. What this is, is what some will call fideism. This emphasis of leaping, taking a leap of faith, jumping into the darkness, so to speak. Here's proof, but you still have to have this faith. Now let me give you an example of how uh, an evidentialist might answer a question. Um, If we were to uh, pose the question, did God make all things? The evidentialist will focus on saying, well look, the earth is unique. It is a certain distance from the sun. That doesn't just happen by random processes and gravitational pull and so on and so forth. Uh, The moon is a certain distance from the earth. And and that, again, just doesn't happen. If it were so many hundreds of miles further away or closer, we'd have, uh, if it's closer, so many hurricanes we couldn't survive. The tides would wash out New York City every every 12 hours, which might not be a bad thing. But anyway... um, these kinds of things are what they'll talk about, right? And, and, and it doesn't just happen. God had to make this, or some intelligent designer would have to make this. And so these kinds of things uh, are how they would approach it. Same thing can be said for the global flood, or, or as I mentioned just a moment ago, the, the Bible and the, and the different manuscripts and so on. All right, now, there's another drawback, I would say, here on this viewpoint. And that is, evidence doesn't necessarily change someone's opinion. Let's turn to John chapter 9 a moment. Uh, We read John 10 here just a little bit ago, but you remember last week we read from John 9. And uh, you recall it was about the man who was born blind, and Jesus came And he put this stuff on his eyes, and now he could see. And here is clear evidence, right? Right in front of you, a miracle done, and how can you argue against it? Well, the religious leaders did, right? They tried to explain it away. They interrogated this guy. They interrogated his parents, and so on and so forth. So the evidence did not move them. If you turn to Matthew chapter 28, here is another example of this. In chapter 28 of Matthew, of course, we have the resurrection of Christ, and the guards were there. They saw these things. They had uh, the front row seat. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ, the, the angels, and so on and so forth. So in verse 11, right, they go to the religious leaders and tell them what happened. Well, instead of believing, the religious leaders pay him off. In verse 13, they say, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. So here is clear evidence, and people still don't want to believe it. So as helpful as the evidentialist approach is, it does not deal with the interpretation of the evidence. You have to have certain presuppositions to interpret the evidence the right way. And so, for example, if we have the same fact, 
right, say of the rock layers or fossils, an old earth presupposition is going to interpret those things one way. A young earth presupposition is going to interpret them differently. Now, if you truly are being fair, the evidence can be very compelling. But how often do we do that? Paul is telling us in Romans 1, we don't do that. We suppress the truth. And so evidentialism, as helpful as it is, does not deal adequately with suppressing the truth. And so we need something more than that. Now, again, God can and does use evidence to bring people to the point of repentance and faith. But only he can help us to see and understand that evidence in the right ways. Only he can change someone's heart. And so when we witness, let's use evidence. Yes. But let's recognize that it may not convince them. And especially if they refuse to believe the evidence, then what do you do if you're only bringing evidence? Okay. So... Again, very helpful, but I would say incomplete in these ways. The second approach that people take here for apologetics uh, is what we call the rationalist approach. This, of course, focuses on the mind, on reason, on logic, on arguments. So, for example, you'll hear about the five ways we can reason our way to God. Or arguments that are used when, to help explain that Jesus did rise from the dead. And so you know, there's the argument that the, the, the swoon theory doesn't make sense. He couldn't pass out and then push a huge rock after being crucified. Um, and then convince everybody that he rose from the dead. Uh, there's uh, arguments that don't fit with Jesus, or excuse me, the disciples stealing the body of Jesus and, and so on. And, 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 and many times these arguments include evidence, but again, the focus is on the arguments themselves. Um, the goal here of this approach is to demonstrate by rational argument, again, not evidence now, but rational argument and logic to the unbeliever that something is true and then call on people to believe in it. So, some obvious names here are R.C. Sproul, of course, that's what we've seen in Sunday school, uh, Thomas Aquinas, Charles Hodge. Um, broadly, this group is called the Classical Apologists. And so classical apologetics uh, fits into this camp, if you will, this rationalist approach. Once again, these uh, people who do these things, it's very helpful. Hey, we've listened to Sproul in Sunday school, and he gives some incredibly good arguments on different ways we can approach some of these questions. Hey, um, and you might remember uh, then uh, some of the things he said about chance and, and, and uh, luck and so forth. And it's very well done. So let me now uh, return to that question. Hey, how does an evidentialist answer the question, did God make all things? All right, well, now how does the rationalist answer the question of how did God or did God make all things? Well, rather than looking to evidence, they would say, well, how do you get something from nothing? And now notice how this includes science, but the focus is on rational thought. How do you get order from chaos? How do you get personality from something that is inherently impersonal? 
Uh, and so these kinds of, of um, uh, rational arguments are used to answer this kind of question. Now, a drawback as I see it from this view includes really the same thing as I said from the evidentialist. And that is they will talk about proving something rationally up to a certain percentage, but say we can't prove to 100% from rational argumentation. And so they too really include fideism. There is a leap of faith. We can rationally prove something up to say even 98%, but there's a, a, a leap of faith that is needed to go to 100%. And so there is an incompleteness in this way. Now, in terms of rational argumentation, another drawback I would see is this. The history of philosophy, whether you go back to Thales in Greece or even before that to the other cultures and such, rational argumentations have been given, philosophies have been given throughout history. But what happens is one generation gives a philosophical argument to answer the question about something, the meaning of life or whatever, and you think of the early Greeks, you know, everything can be explained by air or water or fire or the one and the many and so on and so forth. And, and that's great and it lasts for a little while. But then the next generation comes along and says, well, wait a second, that doesn't answer this question. And, and, and there's a gap over here in this, ra in this uh, argument. And so they come up with something different. Something that explains the world even better, they say. But what we see over the course of you know, 2,600 years, if you go back to Thales, is a back and forth. There will be some rational arguments. There will be some evidential arguments. There are things that focus on the mind, things that focus on the will, things that focus on the emotions, and it's back and forth. Okay? Now, every now and again, somebody tries to put all this together such as Plato or Kant, and they can present a worldview that is rather all-encompassing. And yet, there's always someone that comes after and says, well, you know, this is a better way of looking at it. And this really should not surprise us at all. Because if you look again at Romans 1, isn't this exactly what Paul is telling us? Paul is telling us that these rational arguments are just ways of suppressing the truth. And so you would expect, right, like holding that ball down, at some point is going to pop up again. And, and the rational argument you're using to hold down the truth of God is only going to work for so long. No matter how many try, times you may try to make it work. And so as Paul says in verse 21, right, although they knew God... They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. That word for thought can be translated as reasoning. Their reasoning is futile. And you would expect this if you're going to try to argue apart from God's word, apart from God's revelation. If you turn also to 1 Corinthians and uh, chapter 1, now remember, Paul is writing to people in Corinth, and Corinth is not very far from Athens. And so all the philosophers you've heard about in Greece, right, Plato, Socrates, the Stoics, the Epicureans and such, the Corinthians believed in these things, not just the Athenians. 
And so with that in mind, hear what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Right? Where is Plato? Where is the Epicurean? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to, the, to save those who believe. You cannot know God simply from hu- the human mind. Paul just tells us that here. And the rationalist approach to apologetics, sometimes they'll even specifically say, we're not going to use the scripture at all. We're just going to use the human mind to reason our way to God and explain through rational argumentation. And Paul says, you can't do that. It's impossible. Because we suppress the truth. If you look also at chapter 3 here in 1 Corinthians, verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. Right? It's crafty because they're suppressing the truth. Right? And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile, as Paul says in Romans 1. Right? Their thoughts, their reasonings are futile. Okay. <clears throat> Furthermore, if you continue down the path of the history of philosophy, after Kant, it led inevitably to Nietzsche, who said we can't know anything. We can't even know if that's true. And so he killed himself. That's the logical conclusion of trying to explain God without his revelation, to explain the world without what God has told us about it. And we live now in this postmodern or post postmodern or whatever you want to say, this culture today, and what you will hear is, well, rational argumentation is racist. It's part of the hegemony of the white power, and we should, we should get rid of it. <clears throat> but again, in many ways, you wouldn't be surprised that this is the conclusion. Now, what I'm trying to say here is, Evidentialism and rationalism from an apologetics perspective are extremely useful and helpful, but not when they stand alone, and then they fall apart. Think of it like this. Hopefully this analogy will help uh, what I'm trying to communicate. Um, Well, just yesterday, the pirates went into extra innings, right? And a few years ago, they changed the rule. And if you go into extra innings, you put a man on second base now, right? And the baseball purists say, well, how did he get there? Hey, that's cheating. That's not fair. So how can you say that that the Diamondbacks actually would have won the game, as they did yesterday, because of bad pirate defense? (laughs) But anyway, um, this just doesn't make any sense. Well, in a similar way, when you try to use evidence and rational arguments on their own, without finding your presuppositions in the scriptures, then you're starting at first base. You're not starting at home plate. 
Okay? The rationalist will tell you, we cannot prove the law of non-contradiction. We cannot prove that certain logical syllogisms and such actually work. We believe that they do, but we just can't prove it. We can't tell you where it comes from. In other words, they're telling you, we want to start on first base, and we want to explain the world by starting here, not at home plate. We're not going to talk about how you get to first base. We're just going to start there. Right? Isn't this what the Big Bang argument is? Right? We're not going to explain where the matter came from. We're just going to say, oh, we're going to explain everything that happened after that. Well, they don't want to go back to home plate. They want to start at first base. and It doesn't make sense, right? Well, for those who want to use evidence alone or reason alone, they're doing the exact same thing. Starting at first base tells you that they are fideists. It's a leap of faith. We don't get to first by a single or hit by a pitch or a walk. We're just going to start there. You remember in some of the videos with Sproul, he actually admits this very point. He actually admitted that there are presuppositions that we're not going to talk about, he said. And we're just going to start at first base, is in essence what he was saying. But like the baseball purist, that's a form of cheating. That's a form of circular reasoning. Okay? We can't just assume the laws of reason. We can't just assume that our senses are going to work. But we have to explain where they came from. And the rationalist approach, the classical apologist, and the evidentialist approach never answer those questions from their perspective. Unless they're going to be inconsistent for their view. And Sproul did some of that. Okay. <clears throat> so, there is a third approach. And this approach is called the presuppositional approach. Because this approach focuses on foundational ideas but not foundational ideas that are based solely on the mind or on reason, but foundational ideas that are based on God's revelation to us. Because our minds have been corrupted by sin, as Paul is saying here, none of us can reason perfectly. We must be guided by God's word because rational argument, evidential things through the senses are, evident, are uh, examples and efforts of futility if we don't do it based on the scriptures. And so the goal here of the presuppositional view is to meet the unbeliever where he or she is and then demonstrate to them how that person knows that the, the God of the Bible is the true God and how they're suppressing that truth. Now, we don't necessarily start by saying that, but we know in our own minds, this person I'm talking to who is not accepting the scriptural teaching is suppressing the truth. And they actually know what they're saying they don't know. We know that, and we at times may bring that out, but we're going to try to show them using reason, using evidence, using presuppositional ideas, that what they are uh, believing is, 
is actually a sign that they're rejecting the truth. So some key people here in this view, of course, are Cornelius Van Til, Greg Bonson. There are many people in reform circles today that hold to this view, myself included. This view does not ignore evidence. It does not ignore reason. But it uses them while not ignoring basic presuppositions like where do we get the law of non-contradiction? Where do we get the ability of the eye to transport information to the brain that we're going to understand it correctly? We get that knowledge. We understand that that works because God made us. God made us in his image. He created the eye and connected it to the brain. He gave us rational faculties. And even though they have been corrupted by sin, they're not done away with completely. The presuppositional view goes back to home plate and says we get to first base, we get the single because God made us in his image. That's how we can do these things. And now that we're at first base, we can use evidence to get to second base and we can use rational arguments to get to third base and we can put it all together to get back home because we started in the right place, which is God's revelation to us. His revelation and general revelation, right? The things that he has made and the things he has given to us in his word. Okay. Isn't this the very thing that Paul did in Athens on Mars Hill? He started where they were and then he went to general revelation, God's providence. And he then said, look, you guys know who the true God is. You're just not giving him a name. But you know who he is. Let me tell you more about him. You see how Paul used the presuppositional approach there. He started at home plate, but met him where they were and showed them how their view is not right. Now, did many believe? No, but that's not our goal. Our goal is to present the truth. Okay. Now, this view also emphasizes faith. But it's not a blind faith because we openly say we're looking to God for our answers because that's the only way we can understand anything. <clears throat> so to go back to my same analogy here, <clears throat> did God make all things? Again, the evidentialists will use evidence, the rationalists will use reason and logic. The presuppositionalists will say, did God make all things? Well, yeah, just look out there. You see that tree? Yeah, obviously God made everything. That's evidence. That's rational thought. Okay. We also use special revelation. We turn to Psalm 1 or something, or talking about the tree, or Genesis 1, or whatever it is. And so we interpret the evidence correctly. We, ra we argue rationally because we're starting with God's revelation. Now it is uh, sometimes argued, especially from the rationalist view, that the presuppositionalist approach is circular reasoning. And we would answer and say, well, yeah, of course it is. But all of them use circular reasoning. The evidentialist is starting with the human mind. The rationalist is starting with the human mind. 
And that is their circle. They begin and end with the human mind at first base. Okay. The presuppositionalist starts at home plate and says, we begin and end with God and his revelation. Everyone has a, ra- a circular argument. Okay. It's just the rationalist won't admit it many times. But he does, because he's not going back to home plate. Okay. <clears throat> so, as always, there are so many things that we could say here. But let me try to bring some things together in this way. In Romans 1, and I will say if you missed last week's sermon or the week before, I encourage you to go online and listen to them because I think it will make more sense here from what I'm trying to say. But Paul here is saying that the God of the Bible is the true God. We don't have to prove it because everybody knows it. There is all kinds of evidence out there to show it, and it's the only view that is rational. When we talk to someone else, we're just helping them to see those truths. Okay. Paul is um, not wanting us to ignore the scriptures. He is wanting us to focus on what God has revealed to us and how he has spoken plainly in it. He <clears throat> is saying, let's openly admit that our minds have been corrupted by sin. Not so much that we can't know truth. But they have been. <clears throat> and so with these things in mind, the evidentialists and the classical apologists are really denying what they're setting out to prove because they're beginning on first rather than at home. They're beginning in the, with the human mind rather than with God in his revelation. Now, let me give you two examples in my own life. Um, <clears throat> this is now over 30 years ago when I was at music school in Atlanta. Uh, I witnessed to one of my classmates, and um, to my surprise, he said he was a Christian. And um, it was surprising to me because I, I didn't see any evidence in, in his life that this was the case. But he claimed to be a Christian, claimed that he believed in God. But he then went on to say that God um, is just too busy to pay attention to little old me. And he used that as a reason not to be committed in his so-called faith. Well, I tried to meet him where he was in that way, and I then tried to use scripture and reason and evidence to say that right, God, if God can make the universe and every individual in it, then he's certainly big enough to relate to every individual that is in his universe. And so I tried to make some of those kinds of, of arguments with him. Um, at least as I left it with him, he still was insisting on suppressing the truth. I don't, I've never heard from him since. He actually dropped out, at, so he wasn't even there at graduation. But um, I don't know if it made a difference or not. But the point is, Let's approach it in this way. Another example is when I was in seminary, and uh, I was in my apologetics class, and I was learning about these things, and the professor required all of us to go to speak to someone who specifically said they were not a Christian, and witness to them, and use the things that we were learning in class uh, in that uh, situation. Well, I went to a professor at a local college, 
and he claimed to be an agnostic. And uh, he was trying to say, I, I asked him, why don't you believe in God? And simply he says, uh, I, there's no facts that make it clear to me that God exists or anything about him. Well, <clears throat> maybe this is partly why I use the example so much today. We were sitting at his window. I said, well, look outside. Do you see that tree? There's some facts for you. This is evidence. And then I started explaining how everything that we see is actually a fact that proves that God exists. And I continued to say, basically, you know, you know these things. And I used rational arguments. I used some scripture and so forth. And I don't know how effective I was. Certainly, I would think I'd do it better now than I did then. But ultimately, uh, this man was not convinced because his mind is futile and his foolish heart is darkened. I don't know if my words made any difference in his life or not. But our approach here needs to be consistent with what Paul is teaching us here. And so let's not try to prove something in a way that denies the very thing that we're trying to prove. Don't start at first base. Start at home plate. Okay. And so I believe, and I'm certainly not alone here, that Paul's words here in this section demands that we be presuppositionalists in our approach and that we use reason and we use evidence within that approach. Because if we begin with reason, it denies that sin has corrupted our minds. If we begin with evidence, it denies that sin keeps us from accepting these facts. That's what Paul has said here in verses 18 and following. Okay. And so... <clears throat> um, Presuppositional apologetics is God-centered. It's not man-centered. It starts at home, not at first. It's a complete approach, not partial. It does not lead to a leap in the dark, but leads to genuine faith based on certainty. The other benefit about it is it's useful for everyone. Rational arguments are useful for the, the scholar. Evidential arguments are useful for the scientist. But presuppositional arguments really is useful for everybody when it's done well. Okay. So as I mentioned uh, before, uh, I plan to say these things all along. And as we have talked about some of these things in Sunday school, I have mentioned at least on two occasions that I think Sproul is being inconsistent. He claims to be a classical apologist, but he mentions some presuppositions. He mentions Romans 1. He mentions about being dead in our sins. But then he goes to first base and never explains how we got there. And I would say then he is uh, showing the uh, weakness of that viewpoint. Okay. But again, I am very thankful to be watching these things from Stroll because it can be very helpful for us to learn to rationally argue with people around us and and so forth. So again, I'm not saying it's, it's bad. It's just recognize it's incomplete. Well, this obviously is a huge topic, and I've just barely scratched the surface on it. But I believe, again, Paul's words here are pointing us in this direction. 
And so when you go and you witness to somebody, or you have some uh, discussion, even with another Christian, about some particular topic, deliberately start at home plate, and don't jump to first or second or third, but start with God, his revelation to us, his word, and his world. And this, then, is going to better use evidence and reason and thus prove the very things that we're setting out to prove and demonstrate. Well, we should have a a class or something about the practical how-tos of this, and um, uh, we can put it into practice better that way. But here are a few words today in this way. So Lord willing, next week we will return to Paul's argument in verse 24. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you for uh, your word that you have given to us and the implications that your word makes. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for what we call biblical theology, verses 18 to 23 as they're given. But we're also thankful for what we call systematic theology and how your word directs us to think about particular topics. And so as we have done some of that here today, um, we pray, Lord, that your word would always direct us and always guide us. We pray, too, Lord, that you would help us then to think carefully about how we approach talking to others about you and how we are to defend our faith. We pray, Lord, that uh, we would not uh, shy away from your revelation in those conversations, but use them either directly or indirectly to uh, carry on these conversations and defend the truth. Lord, we pray that through it all, you would use us in all of our weakness and all of our frailty to advance your kingdom and to bring people to faith. Um, We pray, Lord, for your mercies in this way. We thank you, Lord, for so many believers throughout the centuries who have sought to answer questions through reason and through evidence and through uh, looking at all these things. We thank you for their contributions and how you have used them in so many different ways to to benefit your people and extend your kingdom. And uh, so, Lord, we are thankful for this. Uh, Help us again, Lord, in this process that your name would be magnified in it all. We pray this then in Jesus' name. Amen.